You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Mark 13, verses 1 through 8. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. And these are but the beginning of the birth pains. The word of the Lord. Father, thanks for bringing us here together. Thank you for preserving your word for us. Open our eyes to see you, open our ears to hear you, and open our hearts to love you more deeply today. Help us to behold wondrous things out of your word. In your son Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay, so I'm going to do a little bit of ground clearing kind of contextually and conceptually, and then as per usual, I have three points for you and uh, go from there. I think we start here in chapter 13 uh, at what's called the Olivet Discourse, okay? Jesus has come out of the temple and he and his disciples have come up the Mount of Olives to look straight at the temple from across the valley, right? Now, this is kind of a challenging passage for a number of reasons, or an interesting passage for a number of reasons, not least which being the fact that this is one of Jesus' last sustained periods of teaching in the Gospel of Mark. At the beginning of chapter 14, uh, the plot to betray and kill Jesus starts to kind of roll into motion. And right now, uh, this is about Jesus' last chance to give his disciples something to take with them before he goes to the cross. Now, more than that, Mark 13, verses 1 through 8, is full of what we might call end times language. If you're looking at this in your Bible, your subheading will probably say signs of the end of the age or something like that. And, you know, this is a passage that gets cited often when somebody comes into the public eye claiming that they might have a pinpoint precision sort of estimate of, uh, of when Jesus is going to come back, when Jesus' bodily second coming back to the earth is going to take place. But the age that Jesus is predicting the end of here is not the age that encapsulates the sort of existence of this created world. The age that Jesus is prophesying the end of is the age of temple worship, the age of Jewish worship, the age that precedes this sort of new age, right, where we sort of move toward the new heavens and the new earth. Um, if you have a Bible, flip over to verse 30. If you don't, I'm going to read it just the same. Here, Jesus says, 
Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Now, all these things that Jesus is referring to is everything that happens between verses 1 and 30. Okay, so Jesus is saying there is a generation right now that will not pass away until everything in these 30 verses happens. Right now, in just these first eight, we're kind of playing the hits of apocalyptic language, right? We've got famine and earthquakes. We've got nations and more nations, and these nations are going to rise up against one another. We've got kingdoms doing the same thing, and we've got temples being destroyed, stones being cast down, right? And so, while we might associate that in, I think, 21st century America with the sort of second coming, with the end of all things, what Jesus is talking about here is going to happen within one generation. Now, in sort of ancient Near Eastern thought, especially ancient Near Eastern Jewish thought, a generation's about 40 years. Now, Jesus has given us this, 30 to 33 AD, give or take a few months. So we might ask ourselves, is there anything that happens about 40 years after that that might fit this description? Now, if you know your Roman history, you're thinking, yes, in fact, there is. In 70 AD, the Romans come to town, and they sack the temple. And they destroy Jerusalem. And in fact, if you read Josephus, who's a Jewish historian on the Jewish wars, when he sort of recounts the destruction of the temple, he uses language to describe it. It's almost exactly the same as the language that we hear in Mark chapter 13, Matthew 24, and the parallel passage in Luke. So Jesus here is talking about the end of an age, the end of a very real age, but he's talking about the end of the age of Jewish, of temple worship, right? Of coming to God by means of one geographic building in one geographic location. So um, that's helpful context, I think, and it really it should be a huge kind of boon to our faith. Here's Jesus making a prediction while he's on earth that the generation that he's currently in won't pass away until all these things take place. And Jesus, right on the nose, like 40 years on the money, we've got all these things taking place. Right? should be a massive um, kind of foundational push to us as we sort of read God's word, trust it more deeply. So that being said, I have three points for us from this passage that apply to us in Birmingham, Alabama in 2021. So Jesus sometimes, not all the time, maybe not even most of the time, but Jesus sometimes takes good things. Jesus sometimes, not all the time, maybe not even most of the time, grinds those things up and Jesus does those two things to grace us with the greatest so Jesus takes good things sometimes, grinds them up, and graces us with the greatest thing in exchange. I understand grinds them up is a little bit of a gruesome image, but I'm trying to get them all starting with the same letter. So um, <clears throat> bear with me there. Um, okay, so Jesus starts with a good thing, right? The temple as they walk out of it is a good thing thing imperfect and complete but a good thing in fact the first thing that this unnamed disciple in mark 13 says is 
teacher, look at this great building. Look at these beautiful stones. Jesus himself, before he prophesies the end of the temple, acknowledges that this building is great. He says, see this great building? There's coming a time when not one stone will be left on another, but it is a great building nonetheless, right? So more than just a sort of superficial greatness, though, the temple provides a a certain degree of goodness for God's people. See, the temple, after Genesis 3, becomes the place where God and man meet. becomes the place where man offers sacrifices to be made righteous before God. Right after Adam and Eve sin and are kicked out of the garden in Genesis 3, a perfect and holy and just God cannot dwell in the presence of sin, and so there has to be some barrier, some gap between God and man. And yet even still, God chooses to dwell in the midst of his people in the form of the temple. So the temple is a good thing. It provides the people with a way to commune with the Lord, even in their sinfulness. The temple is also where people come to offer sacrifices, right? They sort of form this yearly liturgy around the temple where they come and offer a bull or a goat or a bird or some grain, depending on their level of income, to be made righteous before God as a sacrifice to, at least temporarily, cover their sins. Yet, the temple is super imperfect. The temple is the place where repeated sacrifices are given, right? Uh, by nature, the sacrifice is incomplete if you've got to come back every year and give the same sacrifice over again. What's more, once you leave the temple, you in a very real way are moving away from the unique presence of God. Okay, in the temple, like God is omnipresent, God is present everywhere. That's true in the Old Testament and the New. God doesn't change from Genesis to Revelation, but God's presence lives uniquely in the Holy of Holies in the innermost section of the temple. So when you leave the temple, you are in effect leaving the presence of God in a sense. In fact, if you go to Jerusalem today, you will uh, approach the Wailing Wall and you'll need to wear a kephah or a yarmulke because that is the holiest part of the temple that's still standing. So you leave the temple, you leave the presence of God. The temple is also super susceptible to corruption. You might remember the episode of Jesus cleansing the temple. He walks in and finds money changers essentially extorting people, charging them more for sacrifices and they should be. And he says, this is my father's house and it was to be a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it, the temple, into a den of robbers. You have taken a good thing and corrupted it. Okay? So we have a good thing, the temple, and yet it's an incomplete thing. It's not perfect. It's not uh, robust. It doesn't provide the people unmediated access to God. There are imperfections with the temple. So Jesus takes this good thing and he grinds it up, admittedly. So Jesus, in verses 1 and 2, prophesies the end of the temple, the destruction of of the temple, the age of types and shadows, as the author of the letter to the Hebrews will call it, right? This is the end 
of all the symbolic worship, right? Um, If we want to compare the Old Testament to a blueprint and the New Testament to a house, this is the end of the blueprint. This is locking the blueprint into storage, okay? So Jesus says, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Okay, this isn't just like we're going to have a fire in the broom closet of the temple and it's going to be pretty rough, but like the repair men will come in and they'll swap out the stones and we'll be in good shape. This is total, utter destruction. If you walk past the temple today, if you're ever in Israel, you will see a literal pile of stones on one side of the temple that are left over from the destruction of it in 70 AD. Now, I think it's worth kind of kicking around what James and John and Peter and Andrew are maybe thinking as they hear Jesus prophesy that the temple is going to be destroyed. The temple is a center of Jewish life, right? You, again, order your life around this yearly rhythm where you go up to Jerusalem for the Passover, you eat the meal, you make the sacrifices, you do the dance, you sing the songs, and then you come home. The temple is where God specially dwells. It is in a very real sense the center of the lives of the people of Israel. So when Jesus says this temple thing is not going to be here for much longer, you can maybe imagine what some of the disciples are feeling. Some despair, some uncertainty, probably a sense of loss, maybe some nostalgia, right? It's probably a whole lot of emotions that Peter, James, John, and Andrew are feeling. So God takes a good thing in the temple, an incomplete thing, but a good thing nonetheless. He grinds it up, prophesies the end of it. But he does this not to impoverish his people, not to deprive them of something that they like or something that will be helpful for their growth and grace or something that will draw them closer to God himself. No, he does this to give his people something better, right? To grace his people with the greatest thing. Remember the purpose of the temple is to provide the people with a place where God lives in their midst. That's the goal in the Garden of Eden. In the Garden of Eden, we have essentially a temple where God lives with his people, right? God and Adam and Eve, they walk around together in the cool of the day, is what the book of Genesis says. Okay, there's unmediated access to God in that garden. And the purpose of the temple is to give just a shadow of that after Adam and Eve are evicted from the garden, right? It's to kind of bridge the gap in between Genesis 3.15, when Jesus is first prophesied, and Matthew 1, when Jesus busts onto the scene, okay? So the purpose of the temple is to provide God's people with a place for them to come meet with the Lord. Again, it provides a place for the people to be made righteous before God as they sacrifice in the way um, that Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy command them to. And yet, it very clearly is incomplete. And so we might wonder at what point is the Lord Jesus going to replace this temple with something truer, right? And That, in a very real sense, comes after Jesus' resurrection and ascension at Pentecost, 
where he sends the Holy Spirit to his people, right? And Jesus sort of gives us a view of the temple in a way that itself is reminiscent of of this Old Testament temple, of this Jewish temple, right? In John 1, John writes, uh, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, right? And dwelt is like a fine translation, but a better translation would be tabernacled or templed, right? Jesus, God in the flesh, lives with his people, right? So we're seeing kind of shadows of Eden again here. Jesus is dwelling with his people. And yet even still, that's confined to a geographic time and a geographic place. In a very real sense, Jesus in his flesh is not sitting in these pews with us right now. Right? Jesus ascends to the Father, but before he does so, he promises his people that he will send another comforter. Right, And that comforter is the Holy Spirit. And if you believe in the Lord Jesus, if you're united to him by faith, you in a very real sense have the Holy Spirit living within you. That's why Paul can say, your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. Because God himself literally, and in a very real sense, lives within you, attaches you to Christ by faith. So, as you can see, I think we can see, this is really a fulfillment of the temple system. Right? Remember, as the Jews left the temple, as they go back to Egypt or North Africa or Spain or wherever it is they're headed away from Jerusalem, they are headed away from God's presence. But in a very real sense... As you walk out these doors tonight, you're no closer or farther from the Lord than you were when you walked in. When you're laying in bed, praying, you're no further or closer to the Lord than when you're on one of these kneelers, right? You're no closer to the Lord at the communion table than you are on your drive to work when you're asking the Lord for patience to make it through one more day. So I think the cash value of Mark 13 is that... Mark 13, in this story in particular, where Jesus takes a good thing, grinds it up in order to grace us with a greater thing, the greatest thing, the story of Mark 13 is ultimately a story of reversal. It's ultimately a story of resurrection. It's ultimately a story of death to life. And in that way, it's a story of my life, and it's a story of your life, if you believe in the Lord Jesus Encapsulated in this passage is the general trajectory of God's work in the world from imperfect to perfect, from blueprint to building, from brokenness to new birth, from death to resurrection. This is the shape of the gospel. Acknowledge your death, be raised in new life. Now sometimes this is a rough process, right? Hence the word grind. As you come to the Lord Jesus, you have to reckon with the fact that you yourself are sinful, that we, you and I, have fallen short of the glory of God, that we are incapable of saving ourselves, that we can do nothing to bridge this massive chasm between ourselves and the Lord. Jesus might grind up these good things in your life, right? That, that job, that desire, that ambition, 
that relationship, that friendship, in order to draw you deeper into the greatest thing, himself, right? This unnamed disciple in Mark 13 focuses on the gift rather than the giver. So what happens when this gift evaporates, right? If, if you're focusing on the temple, what happens when the temple is destroyed? If you're focusing on the job, what happens when you're let go? If you're focusing on a relationship, what happens when it ends? You place your worth and identity in transient things. Where are you left when those things disappear? Right? If you... Uh, form and shape your identity around the temple then Jesus promises to come in judgment and eviscerate it 40 years later what are you left with? who are you? right? I think as we read this the question presents itself to you, to me um, either for the first time or for the thousandth is Jesus the greatest thing the greatest person enough for you? Is Jesus the greatest person or the greatest thing enough for me? Um, right before our son was born, probably a month or two, I guess, I started having these debilitating, sometimes panic attacks, right? Um, probably a lot of it was due to the fact that this is like a massive change in my life, but uh, I've had a little bit of health anxiety for my whole life. You might know this as uh, hypochondriasis. Um, and for like the two months before our son was born, I think like every little symptom to me was like the symptom of some horrible terminal disease, right? Like I cough once and, you know, there go the lungs, you know, it's only a matter of time. And so, um, I think the question that I'm asking myself, that, I'm, that the Holy Spirit's driving me to ask in that situation is, is Jesus enough for me? If my health goes, right? If my opportunity to know my son goes, is Jesus enough for me in the midst of that? Right? Is, is Jesus enough to carry me through, to carry me and my family through that. Now, that's, I guess, sort of a, a little bit of a glib example, but I think it's, it's less about the question, do I love Jesus enough? Okay, when we ask about, are your eyes on the gift or the giver? The question is less, do I love Jesus enough? Because the answer to that question will never be yes. I don't know that any of us will ever sit there and say, yeah, Love Jesus enough today. I checked that box, did good enough, and, you know, bada bing, bada boom, we'll try it again tomorrow. But I think the question is more, and the question for me was more, is Jesus, in the eyes of my soul, the kind of person who can bear the burden of my life, the kind of person who can bear the burden of my dreams and ambitions, realized or not, is Jesus the kind of God who can do the things that he says he can do? Is he a kind and loving savior or is he a cruel taskmaster? And if the former, he'll lovingly and graciously take good things from me and from you. 
sometimes to draw you further up and further in, closer to himself, and other times because we've let good things become ultimate things. We've taken good things and started to use them for purposes they were never designed for. My son likes to chew on the bulletins that we get here. I mean, like, it's like splinter cell. Like, you put one in front of his face, and he's, like, zeroed in, and that's where he is headed. The hands are going. He's kicking his feet. He wants to put it in his mouth and eat it. Now, if he eats enough bulletins, he's going to have, like, an intestinal blockage, right? The bulletin is a good thing. The bulletin is a good thing. It tells us when to speak, when to stand, when to sit, when to listen. But if it's used for the wrong purpose, if it is given a significance that it doesn't have of itself, it's not a good thing. It's a bad thing, right? Lord Jesus, in this situation, situations in your life and in mine, takes good things that we've placed ultimate significance on, grinds them up, lovingly and graciously removes them from our grasp but again he doesn't do it gratuitously or because he wants to deprive his children Jesus is a good and loving older brother who delights to give gifts to his people he does it because he knows best when I take the bulletin from Owen I do it because I know those staples aren't going to feel good going down that windpipe okay who is Jesus to you. I wonder if you'd pray with me. Lord, thanks for this day. Thanks for your word. Thank you for preserving it, for drawing us nearer to you. God, go with us after today. Preach to our hearts after this. In your son, Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.